Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. Exploring the bias in the choice factory, I'm joined by the author Richard Chotton and Will Hamner-Lloyd. So before we kick off, Will, can you tell me a little bit more and tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Hi, so I'm Will Hamner-Lloyd. I'm Head of Behavioural Planning at Total Media. Uh, my strong interest in behavioural science actually started when I worked at the IPA, working with Rory Sutherland to help develop behavioural economics as an agenda for the advertising industry. And since then, I've worked in insight and now strategy roles, helping turn the insights of behavioural science into actionable plans for clients. Brilliant. What about you, Richard? I think most people know you, but let's hear a bit more. So I specialise in how do you apply behavioural science, what people used to call social psychology, how do you take those academic abstract findings and apply them to marketing or advertising? And year before last, I wrote a book called The Choice Factory, which took 25 of the most relevant biases for marketers and then explained how those could be applied to advertising and marketing. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, stay tuned to hear how you can win a copy of his award-winning book. So here we are, gentlemen. New Year, new us. Uh, only fair to discuss one of the most important decisions we make at this time of the year, our New Year's resolutions. And for the first time this year, I've decided not to indulge in setting something I won't follow through on. What about you guys? So I'm going to apply an idea we're going to talk about later called implementation intentions. So I'm keen to start going to the gym more, but there's loads of evidence that just vaguely saying you're going to go to the gym doesn't really work. So I've committed to going to the gym on Tuesdays after I drop my son off at school. Uh, at the local gym. So hopefully we'll come back in a couple of months and see if that idea of implementation tends to be a bit more effective. Buff Richard, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Will. Buffish. So my main intention is to do more podcasts, (laughs) uh, which hopefully I should be able to do. There you go. We're already off to a good start. So that neatly and obviously and purposefully takes me into the importance of habits, which is this week's bias in focus. With research generally suggesting that 45-50% of our decisions that we make are habitual, it suggests that it's much harder than brands think to really get consumers to frequently buy their products or take up their services. And if you can figure out how to create a habit or how to break one, the benefits could be huge. Rich, can you expand a bit more on why we default to habit when it comes to choosing a brand? So the problem for brands is that consumers or people have created a, um, a great defence mechanism, as it were, for to get around all the thousands of decisions they make. Because if they weighed up all those decisions in a fully considered, fully rational manner, it would just take a huge amount of energy and effort. So rather than doing that, what a lot of people will do is for a lot of those decisions is just do the same thing as they did last time. Now that's great if you've already got a customer because they may well just do the same thing again and again. But it's a problem for brands who are trying to win over customers because how do you win a customer? How do you persuade them to try your brand for the first time if they're not even fully thinking through their, uh, their act of choosing? So behavioural scientists set up this problem of habit, but they also 
set up some solutions as well. And there are a number of pieces of research which show that there are predictable moments when habits become weakened and that people are at least open to changing their behaviour. So because we're theming this around the New Year's resolutions, the first one probably to mention, the most relevant one, is by a psychologist called Catherine Milkman. And Milkman had noticed, as many other people do, that lots of new habits start around New Year's. But she wondered whether that same behaviour was repeated at other time moments. And she found that people, and she looked here at uh, Google data, so searches things like diets, she looked at gym attendance data and registration data, and she looked at data on an American website called Stick. And Stick's a website where people put down and make public commitments to change their behaviour. And for all those different data sources, she saw that people were much more likely to start new behaviours at the beginning of time periods, whether that was the beginning of the year, month, week, uh, after their birthdays, uh, after federal holidays. And she called this the fresh start effect. And her hypothesis was that, or her explanation, was that people want to be consistent with their past behaviour. And that explains a lot of habitual decision-making. But when they transition from one time period to another, that link with their past self is slightly weakened and they're at least a little bit more open to messages about change. Now, her work was on those new time periods. Uh, a, a colleague and I did some work around just, uh, whether that same effect happened after someone transitioned from one life stage to another. So we saw that after big disruptive moments like uh, ha having a child, um, uh, moving house, getting divorced, retired, married, after all these big life moments, there was a six to 12 month window in which people were again much more likely to change their behaviour. Will, have you seen any evidence of this, especially when it comes to life changes? Yeah, so I think the life changes is a really, really interesting one. Um, for me, where it becomes increasingly interesting is that life changes are a fantastic opportunity to drive any new behaviour. If you move house, you'll change where you shop, where you buy from retailers, you might change shampoo use. But what we found is that the more relevant the life change to the category, the more likely you are to be able to drive that new behaviour. So um, there's kind of really interesting areas. I think the best example of research we had for this was we were looking at a brand called TV Player and they wanted to get people to take up a new subscription uh, VOD service. And people going through life changes were far more likely to sign up to a new subscription VOD service than other people. But interestingly, newly divorced men were the most likely to sign up to the subscription service because not only were they going through a life change, they seemed to have a lot more time on their hands where they would want to watch things and use up entertainment time. So it's about understanding the life change but finding the relevant ones to people as well to really maximise that effect. So what you're saying is that if your product fits and is relevant to a life change, the more likely the consumers are to break the habit with their current favourite brand and more potential for them to use yours. But life changes isn't the only way to do this, is it? So can you tell us a bit more about Nine or the power of Nine or Nine Enders, as it's commonly referred to? Uh, yeah, I think Nine Enders is, is really interesting. I think the most famous example of Nine Enders uh, that I know of is Ashley Madison. Yeah. Uh, so 
Uh, we seem to be on to a theme of divorce <laughs> yeah. and uh, <laughs> uh, people cheating. But Ashley Madison is a site where you have affairs. Uh, and what they found was that people were far more likely to be members of the site when their age ended in nine. So 29, 39, 49, 59. There was something about that moment in life where people start to search for meaning uh, and start to question the nature of their own life that would make them more likely have an affair. And you actually see that exist across lots of other areas, such as uh, people are more likely to take on marathons, more likely to take on any new behaviour, new sports, that will give them a greater sense of personal meaning and understanding of their own life. Uh, and so it can be a really interesting opportunity to tap into for a number of new behaviours that you might want to encourage people to take up. And how, how does a, a brand or an advertiser tap into that sort of data? There's, there's loads of ways for that to tap into it. So obviously social media will often ask people for their ages. So Facebook can be a really good place to target by age, uh, and that works really, really well. There's lots of different sites and places where people put their age into, so you can target lots of display partners through um, the age of people uh, on their sites and using their sites, so that can be a really good way. I've so far found it to be more effective in digital than offline so far, uh, particularly for nine-enders. Right, OK. And is, is there any practical applications in terms of other forms? Because digital obviously has a lot of wealth of data. If a brand's thinking about using the offline media world or targeting in that way, how, how do they apply some of these biases? Well, as, as Will mentions, it's probably easiest in digital. So you've got all the data sources he mentions. If you could think about those life transition moments, you've also got Facebook captures, um, relationship status, Experian will capture whether you've moved house or not. Um, LinkedIn will have whether you've moved job. So there are lots and lots of ways of applying these ideas. Outside of digital, one area is around your own customers. So for like direct mail or um, uh, any uh, website communications, that if you know your customer is either becoming a nine-ender or they are moving from one life stage to another and they've just gone for a big life event, you might want to red flag them and recognise that they are particularly likely to try another brand. So you need to put disproportionate effort into keeping them. Nice. Okay. I always think one of the, just because um, for people who don't work in media and advertising, mm. one of the ones that's most surprising and slightly scary for this sort of targeting is you can target people who've moved house recently um, or who've changed jobs based on tracking where their phone goes. And so companies will know that your phone rests somewhere different eight, hour, eight hours a night or knows that it rests somewhere different for eight hours a day between nine to five on Monday to Friday. And they can tell that you've moved jobs or moved home. And then you can target people with relevant messaging, whether that be get new beds, get new things, DIY, stuff to do up the home uh, for people who've moved home, or whether it be... Uh, energy drinks or other things for people who've recently changed jobs and want to make sure they're alert and in a good state in those first few key months that they're in a new job. Nice. And are there, are there any nuances to this bias? Well, I, th I think Will's point uh, brings out one of the nuances, which is that any if an anyone undergoes a life event, they are more likely to switch brands. So we saw them between becoming two, between two and three times more likely to try a new brand. But the nuance is you've got to spend time thinking, well, what are those relevant life events? And they will become even more powerful. Right. I think another maybe nuance is around this idea of, yes, there are 
digital data sources where you can identify these groups discreetly. So there's a strength around limited wastage. The other benefit is more and more media is becoming auction-based. And if you want to get value in an auction, you need to be using data signals that your competitors aren't. Because if you're in an auction and there's lots of people bidding, the odds are that you will overpay. If you're in an auction and there's few other competitors, you've, you've got a better chance of bagging a bargain. Now, the great thing about something like Nine Enders is most brands will not be using that as a targeting criterion, whereas they will be using income, age, maybe postcode data. So one of the strengths is not only that you're um, basing your activity on a genuine behavioural science finding, there's a, there's a strong practical economic reason for using something like Nine Enders as well. I think it's an interesting nuance is the question around whether or how you adapt creative to these life changes. So uh, we've seen a number of examples. There's some really great research about life moments being when people are more likely to buy a new car. In fact, people who've just got married are four times more likely to change cars. People who've moved house or got a new job are much more likely to change cars. And that's great, but the question becomes, we can target them digitally. Do we target them with the same ad that we would hit everyone else with, or do we try and adapt the copy to feed in to that new behaviour. So if we know they've just got married, do we adapt it about potentially starting a family in a larger estate car? Do we adapt it to looking good with their wife and make the copy look different? If it's about they've got a new job, can you tailor the creative to be about rewarding themselves with a change of car for the achievement that they've had? Uh, I think that's an area that needs to be tested more. We've seen some initial results that suggest tailoring it works but as long as you do it subtly enough, you can't go to someone and go, we see you've got a new job, why don't you treat yourself to a car? Because they find it weird and uh, freaky and would respond badly. But if you go with a more subtle, you've earned it, you deserve it message that doesn't automatically tie into knowing who they are or what they've done, that can respond, like, work really well. Do you have a view in sort of increasing conversions that might deliver or interest um, I think it is often very specific okay. on the quality of the creative, on a myriad of other factors. We've seen it can improve it, but the extent to which it does depends on the creative message and the audience that you're reaching. And there's probably a balance between immediate impact. So there's a bias called the cocktail party effect, which suggests that a huge amount of information that we're bombarded with, we just ignore or don't even really process. But if that information is tailored and made relevant to us, we're much more likely to notice it. So one way of making it notable or one way of making it relevant would be to harness some of these uh, life events. But the flip side of that is, as Will mentions, you might get that extra conversion, but you've got to make sure that you don't uh, do long-term damage for your brand by looking creepy and um, bizarre. Yeah, stalkerish. Mm. Stalkerish, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the very famous mm. example of that uh, that a lot of people know is Target, mm. where they um, could get data on everything that people were buying, and they knew when people were pregnant based on a number of new items that they started buying, uh, and they started sending out pamphlets of offers around uh, products to do with pregnancy, uh, and they sent one, uh, and they got a phone call from a father saying, you've been sending pamphlets around pregnancy to my 14-year-old daughter. What are you doing? This is so offensive and unbelievable. I can't believe you've done this. 
Uh, and then the story goes, he called them a few weeks later, saying, actually, it turns out there were a few things going on in my house that I didn't know about. Uh, you were right, and I, I was unaware. Now, that's uh, obviously a great story of what brands can do, but also the danger of this, that you start to invade people's personal lives, you make them feel uncomfortable, you show the weird amount that you can know about them. And so it's striking that balance between being useful and relevant but as you say, not being creepy, weird or overstepping the acceptable boundaries of what you should know? I mean, it's, it's quite a thin line because obviously they had no idea that was the case. So it's about actually what data you do use and how you apply it to communications. So with Target, the change that I believe they made was they started adding in more pregnant, relevant offers, but they didn't make the whole pamphlet about it. So it That's... could appear that it just happened mm. to be relevant and useful, but to anyone that it got sent to, it wasn't obviously about pregnancy and therefore causing uh, distress or concern about how they knew that information. Nice. And um, we do, so we've been talking about how you interrupt a pattern of behaviour to introduce a new behaviour, but how do you make sure it sustains that, becomes a habit? So one theory that I touched on at the beginning is this idea of implementation intentions. The idea that the more concrete and tangible you can get people to think things through exactly about how they're going to change, when they're going to change, where they're going to change their behaviour, if you can do that, people are much more likely uh, actually to follow through and, and, and start the new behaviour. So there's a very simple study done by um, Sarah Milne back in 2002, and she wanted to encourage people to start exercising. She splits them into three different groups. First group's the control group. They're just told to exercise as much as they can. Second group's the motivation group, where they are told to exercise, but also told about the health benefits of exercising. And then the third and final group get all that information, the motivation and the request, but they're also told to write down when and where they're going to exercise for, um, for 20 minutes or more over the, the next few weeks. And when she meets up with them again two weeks later, she sees markedly different responses or different success rates by cell. So the first two groups, there's minimal difference. It's kind of mid-30s. 31% of them managed to exercise uh, enough times during that time period. But when it came to the third and final group, the ones who had made what she called an implementation intention, 91% of them uh, exercised at least a couple of times over that, that, that time period. So her argument was... If you want to change behaviour, don't just focus on changing the audience's motivation. Make them uh, set out very clearly when, where and how they're going to, to change that behaviour. So it's a simple act of actually stating when you're going to do it and mm. actually recording that as well. Um, so, well, that's an interesting point that there, there's almost two biases at play. There's the implementation attention, making these uh, specific uh, points in your own mind about what you're going to do and when. But secondly, there is also evidence that if you make a public commitment in front of other people, that can make you more likely to stick to your goals. Right. So post it on Facebook, let everyone know what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, because yeah, then there's there's reputational damage to you if you if you don't follow through. Yeah. Another solution is to mention what you're going to do on a podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that everyone can hold you to it. It's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> Brilliant. And Will, have you got any other examples? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area around uh, trying to create habitual behaviour for brands. I think one of the areas is there's habitual buying, but also getting people to habitually use your product and therefore buy it more often. 
one of the most famous examples of this is Febreze, who were good at covering up smells, bad smells, but found that they weren't being used that often. When they added a pleasant smell to Febreze and advertised that you should spray it at the end of doing your cleaning, it created this reward feeling. Every time you use Febreze at the end of cleaning, you felt a sense of reward and happiness for the smell showing that you've done a good job cleaning. And that created a habitual behaviour of use that drove sales massively. And you can think about that in the design of a lot of products. There's a, another example with um, Pepsodent, which is a, uh, a toothpaste. And there's a lot of messaging around toothpaste that was, it removes the film on your teeth, it will leave you feeling beautiful afterwards. But Pepsodent actually purposely added a load of chemicals to create a tingling sensation in the mouth after you cleaned your teeth to create a sense of psychological reward that when you cleaned your teeth, you did the action, then you got the reward. Mm. And that process of action reward helps create habitual behavior um, and can Brilliant. make it kind of a, a product that you use more often and then purchase more often. How do the various behavioral models play into this? The one I like that Will's mentioned is Pepsodent, because he, he's focused on the very important reward part. But the other thing they did brilliantly was um, have a trigger. So there are a number of different psychologists out there with their own you know, bespoke models of how you create a, a habit. But if you kind of condense them down to their core parts, most of them have three elements. You need a trigger, you need a reward, like that mouthfeel from the Pepsodent, and then you need to repeat that behaviour. And if you look at Pepsodent, they managed to do all three. You know, the brilliance when they launched back in I think it was the 1920s and Claude Hopkins was the, the kind of creative genius behind it, they didn't go out and just say, you should brush your teeth twice a day. They said, you should brush your teeth once after breakfast and once before you go to bed. And that, by making it attached to a very specific moment in the day, that's, that's the creation of a trigger. So after breakfast, the idea of brushing your teeth becomes salient. And people went off and did it. And habits need that trigger, that specific moment or place to, to coalesce around. So that's another, I think, Im, Im, important part of the, the habit creation. I think that's a really good point mm. about Pepsodent. A really another interesting thing for things for brands to think about. If you want to get people to do a new behaviour, can you piggyback existing behaviours that people have uh, and then say, add this onto it? So one of the most famous examples was, I think, the London Fire Brigade, who said, don't just check uh, that your fire alarms were working. They suggested that when the clocks change and you go around and change the clocks, also check your fire alarms. And by doing that, they actually found that people who saw the campaign were three times as likely to have checked their fire alarms. Because once you're already doing a behaviour, it's very easy to add another one onto it. Um, and we've used this with quite a lot of brands, particularly brands where uh, you're asking people to do admin in order to sign up. So financial brands, broadband, things like that. If you can find moments when people are already doing life admin and say to them, just add on this extra task, they're far more likely to do it than if you're trying to convince them to stop watching TV and do that one bit of admin on its own. And so it's a really good opportunity to find those times when they're doing admin and just get them to add a little bit extra onto it. Brilliant. We're, we're coming up on time, but it's, it's one of the check with you guys. Is there anything else that you think are important for our listeners to take away from today's podcast? Rather than summing up the 
point Will was just saying around that fire example, I think is a lovely uh, example for two reasons. Firstly, there's a, there's a humility to attaching your um, the behaviour you want to a, an existing behaviour because we've got to recognise that changing people's behaviour is a really hard thing to do. So getting them to both to trying to create a trigger and a desired behaviour, you've set yourself two tough tasks. Better to be a little bit more humble and attach yourself to an existing one because then you've only got one thing to do. And then the second point around that, that fire um, test example is I spoke to the planner behind that um, at Rainy Kelly's and she was saying that she was inspired to do it because um, she'd read about the same thing being done in America. Right, okay. And actually, that got me thinking that why isn't it... Why don't we do that more often? Why are we so obsessed as an industry of coming up with our own idea? We should spend more time looking around the world and thinking, what are the great examples of behaviour change in the category we're trying to work with? And then take those and reapply them in the UK. Because frankly, it doesn't really matter if we were the generator of the idea. It's whether or not it's a successful campaign. I think most most ideas are, are by standing on the shoulders of giants. Is yeah. So actually understanding what's happened and how we can build upon those. Yeah, I think that makes it almost a second part. There's being inspired by other ideas, but sometimes, they, you know, Guatemala or Kenya or an, an American agency have had exactly the same problem. And if it's been successful there, you know, it's still there are of course cultural mm. differences, but you know, at least you've got. Um, a decent idea to take in and, and, and test. That's good really planners mean. borrow, great planners steal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. And is, is there somewhere, I mean, just talking about that, because actually that's a really useful resource, but where, where would brands go? Where... So, a good, good point. There, there's not a great single repository of behavioural biases. Not yet. <laughs> um, there is Stirling University have um, collected what they call a nudge database, it's very um, non-commercial, though. It's often what governments and charities have done. Now, that can still be useful, but there isn't a commercial equivalent yet. Increasingly, as behavioural science becomes more common across the marketing industry, you can find more and more examples of it on Walk, which I think is a very useful, easy-to-navigate place that often presents the information in mm. non-academic, easy-to-understand yeah ways that that's useful for everyone can you explain what walk is for our listeners of course walk is a uh, resource um, for people in the marketing industry that collects together lots of case studies across the world and data globally uh, that people can uh, sign into their system and use and it's w-a-r-c there's a lovely series on on walk of uh, crawford hollingworth and it's written in very plain english but with plenty of detail and uh, analysis so that that's i think yeah i think that's a great place to start now, Will, before we go, it would be good to get one more example of where you've had some success in applying what we've talked about here today. Maybe one that I'm familiar with in the energy drink market, for example. I think one good uh, client example in this area was when we launched Caraval, which is an energy drink that now sponsors the League Cup in the UK. Um, and the energy market is a really interesting market. Uh, according to Mintel, uh, and supported by research we did, 92% of purchases are driven by high-frequency habitual buyers, um, which is higher than the 80-20 rule that wow. you would normally expect. Uh, and because of that, we thought that we had to break existing habits of people who buy energy drinks. And one of the ways that we did that was by targeting people who were going through life events, 
people who had recently moved house, people who had got a new job, people who were taking up marathons. And again, a lot of those seemed relevant uh, because those may be times in life when you need more energy. People that have recently had children, uh, a time when, again, you may be tired and be looking for an extra energy boost. Uh, and that was a really good way to get a new habit of buying a new energy drink into people, was tapping into those life events. And we had some really great success with the results of that with Carabao. Could you tell me about, because I understand that in terms of an awareness point of view, the results were... Results were fantastic. So we grew prompted awareness from 0% amongst energy drinkers to 21% amongst energy drinkers uh, with the campaign, having spent only 1.2 million. And Millwood Brown norms for new product launches would suggest that you should only get up to about 8 to 11%. So we were almost twice as successful with the campaign as you would expect uh, for norms. Uh, So it was really successful. Fantastic result. Thanks, Will. In summary... Habits can be hard to break or create, but by applying everything that we've discussed here today around behavioural science techniques, they can have an immense benefit for a brand from driving new customers to increasing loyalty and frequent purchase, and especially understanding how to connect to relevant moments such as nine-enders, major life events or fresh starts, such as the period we're in now, or by piggybacking existing habits. Richard, Will, thank you. Very interesting. As promised, if you want to win a signed copy of Richard Shorten's book, The Choice Factory, please rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. And we'll pick a winner every week and we'll speak to you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.